Matt and Ryan here with Expedition 44. We are on a series on hell, and we started the series off with the introduction and then did an interview with Chris Date of Rethinking Hell. Great interview there. Then we kind of merged into the first of the views, which was conditional immortality. And today we are going to do another, what I would refer to as minor view. And this one is referred to as Christian Universalism, but it has other names that are kind of similar or the same. So other names that you might hear this described as is ultimate reconciliation, universal restoration, or patristic universalism. Yeah, so this view states that in the end, all shall be saved. So It's important when we get into this, though, that we separate this view from what people generically refer to as universalism. Because I think a lot of times, people that aren't familiar with these views, especially if you have primarily an ETC background, you hear of this and you go automatically to a pluralistic form of universalism. And it's important that we say that this is not that. This is a very, you know, I don't know if I want to use the word evangelical, but it's a, it's a very biblical view of the way that you look at hell. Yeah, it's not that all roads lead to God, so you can't get to God through Buddha or Hindu religion or Islam, it's that Jesus saves the world. Jesus yeah. is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people that don't like this view, I think the hang up with it is still pluralism because mm -hmm. they look at it and they say, well, what's the difference if everybody eventually is going to be saved? Then what's, is that the same as all roads leading together anyway? Yeah. And we would say, no, it's not the yeah. same. We would say no, because this view is going to affirm all of the, you know, Christian cardinal doctrines. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's taking all you, you can't arrive at this view saying Buddha is God. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So this, so like you said, this view affirms all the, the cardinal doctrines, the creeds, um, it believes in a judgment and and it believes in a place called hell in most versions of this um, universal restoration just believes that it won't last forever so just to give you a kind of big picture look at this I personally really like the view I I think that I believe that God can do this, that he is able to do this. And his scripture says over and over that he desires for everybody to come to him. So if he desires for everybody to come to him and he's able, mm -hmm. omnipotent for everybody to come to him, then why wouldn't that be the plan? Yeah. And so that's the big thing that I come to, but then my hang up with it or where, you know, we have problems with it sometimes we say in theology is that as we read the scripture, it doesn't appear some verses are going to make that view seem difficult, yep. that all would eventually come yep. to him. And so that's what we're wrestling through today is I would consider myself more into the conditional immortality yep, camp, but I'm also a hopeful universal reconciliationist that I think that would be great. Isn't that what the Bible says, that all might come to know him? And so as we look at this, these are, this is the wrestling match that we're in, that we, we like this view, we would like to see it happen as the picture that God brings into us, but at the same time, what we're always doing is saying, what does the lens of scripture teach, and mm -hmm. is this 
essentially what it teaches. So let's get into some of the definitions of it. Yeah, um, so some interesting facts to start out with. Four of the six early theological schools taught universalism. Yeah. So we talked about this in our first episode. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So the main reason that maybe eternal torment took over as the main view, uh, we talked about this in our last episode, was Rome was the only church or the only theological school in the first few centuries that taught eternal torment yeah and then the catholic church started in rome but kind of became the universal church so a lot of people go to augustine that's mm -hmm. kind of just the the major church father and he would say at his time that the majority of christians believed in universal, universal yeah there's a quote from him actually it says that um then Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, they were uh, universal res restorationists, and they were part of that core group that wrote the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Um, so, and actually, Gregory of Nyssa was called um, the flower of orthodoxy. Right. And so most people push this view as very unorthodox. Right. This guy held to it, and he was called in the early church the flower of orthodoxy. So then it leaves me to question, when did this view kind of go south? Because today, it's a very minor view. You uh -huh. hear very few people that even know about this, and when they do, they kind of think of it as heresy, heresy. sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that thinking may have started at the Fifth Council. Yep, so mm -hmm. Fifth Council claimed um, universalism most will say this as a heresy, but yeah. it wasn't universalism outright. Right. So this was some of Origen's crazy followers, which Origen was a couple hundred years before yeah. this council. So people who followed kind of his teachings eventually matched this view up with the pre-existence of souls. Yes. And, and we talk about this a lot, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, Platonic or Aristotle's view of the souls and how that doesn't usually really match up with the biblical view mm -hmm. of the souls and this is kind of rooted in that discussion. Yeah, yeah. so this view combined that view of pre-existing souls, so souls being matched up with bodies, yeah. and then universalism together and those two combined was condemned as a heresy, not yeah. just universalism. So you have to ask the question of immortality. Mm -hmm. where, where, where do we stand as whether you want to call them souls or the core of who we are spiritually, are we immortal or are we not immortal? Yeah, the, the early church, I'd say, after the apostles and a lot were these four theological schools that held this were in pretty um, platonic areas, yeah. so followed Plato's teaching. So I would say that most of them probably believed in the immortal soul, yeah. and that's kind of a part of part of this view but at the same time you don't have to take an immortal soul to hold this view keith giles who we had on the podcast he yeah. doesn't believe he's more of a conditionalist on the immortal soul thing but he's the universal restorationist yeah yeah so it it's interesting that you can have both views mm -hmm. within with this. this yeah. yeah and so mm -hmm. then you get to what is your definition or view of eternity mm -hmm. what does eternity mean within this view yeah and so similar to the conditionalists we made the point in our last episode that god defeats sin yeah this view claims the same thing um but in a slightly different way the universalists see that god from the beginning working in, to bring all creation back to reconciliation with him and Jesus's mission was to seek and save the lost. So Matt and I always start in Eden and mm -hmm. we always say if you if you start in Eden and you take this picture of this was what God created his world with his created beings to be like and then it mm -hmm. gets all mucked up and in the end what does it look like? Yeah. 
Well, many would claim that in the beginning, all the created beings were created to forever, you know, be in communion with God. Mm -hmm. And if that's the way it starts, and we often come back to saying that's the way mm -hmm. it ends, then this view also makes a lot of sense that all would be back in that uh, position or yeah. picture. Yeah, in Colossians 1.16, it says that through Christ all things were created. And then four verses later, it says all things are reconciled to him. Yeah. So if we take that God, Christ did create all things, and then through his work of death, cross, resurrection, ascension, yeah, then that it should be the same all things. Right. So... It's consistent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, kind of contrary to conditionalists, universalists believe that if the enemy even gets one person in the end, that God's victory won't be complete. So, if the devil ends up with more chips than God yeah. at the end of the game, then sin won't truly be dealt with. God won't truly be victorious. And so, that's what they view. This is really important. This, this is, when we say that you need to look at the whole lens mm -hmm. of Scripture and say that... Your view of hell is influenced by your understanding of God or your character of God. What every Christian pretty much agrees on is that Christ was victorious on the cross. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to completely say that Christ is victorious on the cross, in the end, if, if Satan wins over some of the souls into hell, then is Christ truly victorious on the cross? Yeah. And is he all in all? So. so we have a problem with the other two views here. We mm -hmm. have, have a problem looking at the whole of Scripture that they don't seem to make sense because the Bible teaches over and over that God has victory in the end. Mm -hmm. But if God doesn't have victory over all sin in the end, then we've got a problem to mm -hmm. work through. And there are ways to work through that. Mm -hmm. of, of course, Matt and I don't necessarily land here, so we've worked through some of those views yep. in the other ones. Yep. What, what's Talbot's template? Yeah, so Thomas Talbot, he's a Christian philosopher, and he um, is a universalist, and he has this template of uh, basically kind of three statements. So the first statement is, it's God's redemptive purpose for the world to reconcile all sinners to himself. So does God want to do that? Yeah. Does God want mm -hmm. to reconcile everybody? Well, yes, we know yeah. that he does want yeah. to do that. So the second one, it is within God's power to achieve this redemptive purpose for the world. So we, good we affirm that. Yeah. Um, the third one is some sinners will never be reconciled to God, and God therefore will either consign them to a place of eternal punishment for which there will be no hope or escape, or put them out of existence altogether. So you can't affirm all three. Can't do it. They don't work. Yeah. So the... Calvinists will affirm number two and three, that God's powerful, able to achieve his purposes, but not all will be reconciled to him. Okay. So uh, Arminians or free will theists um, will affirm one and three, that God's redemptive purpose is to reconcile all humanity yeah. to himself, but sinners won't be reconciled to God and some will be put out of existence or yeah. thrown into lake of fire. But the universalists affirm one and two, that it's God's purpose to reconcile all to himself, and it's within his power to achieve it. Yeah. So and that's Talbot's kind of template. So either God refuses to save all, which is the Calvinist view, right. can't save all, the free will, theist view because of free will, yep. um, or will save all, the universalist yep. view. Yeah. Pretty interesting to frame it that way. Mm -hmm. It kind of gives you just a simple template to work off of and say, again, which one makes the most sense according to the whole lens of scripture. So. My next question is, we did a whole series on the gospel. Mm -hmm. And 
throughout the New Testament, you hear the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and you ask any Christian what is the gospel, and you get these mixed yeah. reports all the time. Even even within you know the same church, you're going to get them. So, why is this discussion important when you're talking about the gospel? Because the gospel means good news. Yeah. So, is it? really good news in the other views. I think the universalist view kind of m makes it good news that yeah. Jesus is king. He's the saving king. Yeah. Um, so, in God's love is universal and that has ramifications if God is love and we do yeah. see that in the scriptures. So, big, big picture thinking again. Mm -hmm. So, out of the different views, some of them have strengths in different places mm -hmm. and I would like to say this is the philosophical or the logical view. Mm -hmm. When you just sit back and you think over what the Bible says and which one makes the most sense, this is kind of where you land. Mm -hmm. um, and we even see this, like people will push back that you don't see universalism in the Old Testament, but you, you kind of do. You do, yeah. So it, there's a strong um, sense of God being slow to anger and abounding in love. We see it over and over that his mercy endures forever. In Psalm 36, it's repeated 26 times yeah. that his angers for a moment but his favors for a lifetime he is gracious and merciful he relents from doing harm and yeah. jonah that so it goes on and on <laughs> jonah and micah are interesting here mm -hmm. because in the old testament you get these minor prophets and it almost seems like the plan changes a little bit and so that's the big thing with jonah is is god changing his mind is his course of wrath or anger versus love? Does that take a different course or a different picture? Does that bridge the gap into the Jesus kind of thinking? Yeah. And so these are tough questions in theology. These are mm -hmm. ones that you continually wrestle with over and over and over. But when you look particularly at the minor prophets, the, this seems to be a, reoccurring theme. <laughs> be a theme. And you go, what do you do with this? And mm -hmm. what's the answer in terms of your view of hell? Well, again, today we're talking about re universal reconciliation. And if you only read the minor prophets... I'm not sure you'd consider any other view. Yeah. Um, then when we look at the heart of the of God in the Gospels, um, the it we've seen in the God's behavior in the prodigal son, the lost coin, the sheep that he won't stop going after. Yeah. He'll leave the ninety-nine to go after the one. Um, it it kind of Jesus is showing and unveiling the heart of God. Yeah. That God goes after the people that are lost. Yes. So then you kind of get into this idea, we, we're, we're going to have to talk, we don't like to throw sticks or beat up our reformed brothers too much, but we don't go that way, and so you have to talk about that in this discussion. And so today, are we all God's children or is it just the elect? Yeah, That's he, a discussion for today. Yeah, does he just love the elect or does he love everybody? Or some will say that he has a special love for his people. But we, we see in Acts um, 17 that we are all God's children. Paul says it on the Areopagus. So before we get to too many of these, yeah. there, there are scriptures that talk mm -hmm. about the elect and predestination yeah. and things like that. We're not having that full discussion. Yeah, we've we're, had it. we're just saying <laughs> we're just saying in terms of universal reconciliation, what what do we read? And Acts seven says we're all as children. Yeah, and Ephesians three says about my need of the Father for whom the whole family on earth derives its name. And then there's all kinds of scriptures yeah. that talk about God's 
impartialness oh, or yeah. how he's not partial to mm -hmm. different things. Yeah, Ezekiel 18.4 says, All souls are mine. Yeah. Um, Malachi 2.10, Have we not one father? Has God not created all of us? So, whenever you get into the nature of God, particularly as seen through Jesus, you mm -hmm. end up with this idea of universal love. That yeah. God's love is so big and so powerful that it defines everyone. So if he truly loves every single person, and he, we go back to Talbot's thinking, and mm -hmm. he desires and wants for mm -hmm. them, then doesn't it look like the plan would be for universal salvation? Yeah, John 3.16, God so loved the world. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. So yeah, so we get um, this universal love seeking universal salvation all throughout the Bible. So yeah. Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Um, John 12, I came, came to save, save the, the world, world not, not condemn it. Yeah, yeah. Second yeah. uh, Corinthians 5, Christ was in, God was in Christ reconciling the world yep. to himself. Titus 2, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. Yeah, and then you have 1 John 2, 2, and that's where we get into the propitiation type of yeah, talk. Yeah, not just for us, but for the whole world. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. um, and then 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, that um, basically God, Jesus, God being the... Jesus being the mediator between God and men. He gave himself as a ransom for all people. There's tons of these. Uh -huh. we, we could spend an hour just going through them. we got 2 Peter 3, 9, 2 Samuel 14, 14, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. Yeah. There's a lot in Isaiah. Yeah, the whole end of Isaiah. Through. All the nations stream in yeah. to Zion. So you go throughout the Bible and it's hard not to see this kind of universal love that ends with universal reconciliation within it. Everything seems to point that way. And again, we could go through all of these and you might be able to pull some of these out and say, well, you know, maybe, you know, it's talking about something else, well, but yeah. like as big picture thinking, they all seem to land here. Mm -hmm. um, then the next part that we get to, so we see that God loves universally um the other thing is is if we are children of god if all people are, are children of god as it states in this view that a loving father would chastise and judge to correct those yeah. who he loves and right. we see that over and over in scripture so god's actions including his judgments are with a positive purpose yeah so isaiah 26 is kind of this interesting chapter where it's talking about um the inhabitants of the world, everyone will will learn righteousness. And some people take that as eschatological. Some people kind of say, well, that's more within this earth that God will bring everybody in there. But it's a lot of great questions that come to float. Is, is God teaching righteousness even to the lost right now? Or is God teaching that eventually, eschatologically, universal reconciliation will bring all back to him? Mm -hmm. Um, then in First Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about kicking somebody out of the church who basically won't, um, won't doesn't won't is refusing yeah. to follow God, and it says to give him over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. That in the last day, in the day of the Lord, they will be saved. Yeah. So when you start getting into this eschatological thinking. We're going to land on this word eternal. And this mm -hmm. has come up in every film on hell that we've yeah. said over and over and over. And you see 
this word being used very differently. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's used in a way to kind of describe forever thinking. Mm -hmm. Other times it's used to describe unending. We always struggle with this because we come back to the understanding that says only God is truly eternal. Mm -hmm. And so when you try to make out man to be equal in the character aspects of God, you can kind of get into some problems with mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then also maybe eternal could be idiomatic. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jan Bonda in her book, uh, The Purpose of God, says 13 times Jeremiah uses the word eternal or eternity in the context of divine punishment. We hear twice the anger of God will not turn back until he is executed or accomplishes the intents of his heart. We are told precisely what eternal means when the prophet speaks of fire that will burn in eternity. It does not mean that God's wrath will burn forever, that is, without end. His wrath will burn without ceasing until its purpose has been accomplished. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff in here that really makes you think twice. And some people try to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament, saying that in the Old Testament, they just clearly didn't see the whole lens of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of people reading that are going to take particularly the ETC view on this and just say, in the Old Testament, everything was not revealed. They just didn't get it. So they were they were describing things according to what they mm -hmm. knew, but what they knew really wasn't accurate. It wasn't completed in Christ yet. Yeah, progressive revelation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Universalists also believe that God's judgments are severe, but for the purpose of restoration, and they're expressed through God's mercy and love. Yeah. Um, so in Psalm 62, it says, to you belongs mercy, for you render to each according to their work. Um, yeah. And then Lamentations uh, 3, 31 through 33, it talks about the Lord won't cast off anyone forever. Yeah. He brings grief. He, um, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. He is not For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. So we, we sometimes talk about how different writers have different views. They mm -hmm. didn't all have the exact same view. And throughout the Psalms, you get this over and over and over. We've already read a lot of them, yep. and we can continue to read more. But, I mean, honestly, I just tell you to go read the whole book of Psalms. And when you read the whole book of Psalms and Lamentations and a lot of these Old Testament ones, this universal reconciliation mm -hmm. point really seems... Yes solid. In fact, if we could bring David onto Expedition 44 today and interview him, I'm pretty sure he would sit right here and say, "Well, yeah, that's, you know, that that's my view. That's what what it is and and that's what everybody thought." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. The Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. Yeah. And through them. Now, does that change in the New Testament? I I don't like having those conversations mm -hmm. because I see the Old Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, being very much the same yeah. thing and that it doesn't change from one to the other yeah. in a sense of the overall plan. The yeah. overall plan is the same. I think believe that God is dynamic in the way that he gets there, but yeah. that's actually more of a support for universal reconciliation mm -hmm. than not a support. Yeah, and so one of the last things here before we start diving into some of the proof texts of universalism, and we've given quite a few framing yeah. the philosophy right. behind it, is I really can't imagine hating my enemies enough to wish eternal misery on them. Yeah. So if we're made in the image of God, maybe this might be just being emotional, that in his love is vastly greater than mine. Right. And if I wouldn't wish that on my enemies, then what about God? Especially my children. Yeah. 
So Matt and I really don't have a lot of tolerance for ETC, mm -hmm. which is kind of yeah. you know funny that it's the main view, and we're mm -hmm. going to do a film on ETC, mm -hmm. and yep. we're going to try not to make it you know just be yeah. a film of throwing rocks. We're going to try to represent it as much as we can, but we do really struggle with the view mm -hmm. because it just doesn't seem to hold to the nature yeah. of God. And both of us, when we look at universal reconciliation, mm -hmm. just go, that's that's yeah. what God wants. That's what yeah. the Bible teaches over and over. And sometimes people will make the accusation here is, oh, you're just making God in your own image. Yeah. <laughs> but I like to turn that back on them because my image, I would rather take revenge on my enemy. And yeah. I would rather, even though I wouldn't want them to be tortured forever, and I think that's more of because we've got the spirit within us yeah. and God is conforming us to his heart, you do see some people out there that do want revenge on their enemies. That's the natural disposition of the fallen nature yeah. is that we do want that. So if we're making God into that image, that's making God in our own image. Yeah. A God who is love and what the way he explains in the scripture is actually letting God be in his own image. That's that's a great point. So you hear a lot of times in, in you know movies and things like that, people will say something like, you know, damned to hell or, mm -hmm. you know, I hope you burn in hell yeah. forever and ever. And obviously those are kind of ETC mm -hmm. comments, you know, just showing that that's what our world, Christian or not, kind of makes it out to be. But people cringe when they hear stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, if I were to tell you, I hope you burn in hell forever and ever and ever, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> that's a terrible comment, uh -huh. you know? I know? So most people would like look at me and say, oh, you shouldn't say that. But then what does it say about their view of God if they uh -huh. think that, that that's, God will do it. that God will do it? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. It seems to be making God in our image when yeah. we think that way. So let's look at some scripture. We're going to kind of take a lot of the main verses that might talk about ETC, conditional immortality, and primarily universal reconciliation and see why Matt and I say the Bible seems to land here over and over and over. But then in the end, both of us kind of yeah. fall a little bit differently than this too. But yeah. let's take a look at them. I think 1 Timothy 4 is a good place to start. Yeah, so 1 Timothy 4.10 says, uh, This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is a savior of all people, and especially those who believe. So when you start in the Old Testament and you look at Israel, was the question always arises, was all Israel in the Old Testament saved? There are some pretty bad Israelites. <laughs> yeah. That, are they going to be saved in the end? Well, most of us in our evangelical Western thinking would say, not a chance. Mm -hmm. There was somebody in Israel that had, you know, completely blasphemed the name of God and they're yeah. not going to be there. Yet the Bible over and over in Israel gets problematic because it, it does say that all Israel is going to be seen to be saved. And then when we get into the New Testament, scriptures like 1 Timothy are going to kind of yeah, savior of all. put Especially this together. So what do you yeah. do with that if you think Romans that 11. some are going this yeah. way and some are going that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we get into uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, 21 to 22, and Romans 5, 18 and 19. They kind of say the same thing. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So think about that for a second. In Adam all are dead. Mm -hmm. We know that. Mm -hmm. That man, Adam is a word for man. Man, Every man dies in the mm -hmm. physical flesh, but yeah. then all are made alive at the same time. Mm -hmm. When you When you put this together, what is made alive, yeah. that's 
usually a reference to salvation. Yeah. And then in the in the Romans one, it says that one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people. So one righteous act results in the justification of all yeah. people. Um, so if you can claim, maybe the ETC people want to claim that not all will be saved in Christ, but then they have to logically say that then maybe not all are condemned in Adam. Yeah. Because... Consistency. All means yeah. all. Yeah. They should mean the same thing. He's just juxtaposing two ideas, so they need to have the same idea echoing each other. Let me read Colossians 1, 19 and 20. We're going to continue with the same kind of thinking. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Yeah, again, to universal reconciliationists, all means all here. The yeah. entire chapter here is talking about things, we talked about Jesus creating all things, so the same all things that Jesus created are reconciled to him. Yeah. So, like Adam above, if you can't prove that Jesus created all things, that's the only argument that you'll have to against all things being reconciled. So it seems that over and over, all things means all things. Everything, everyone. And so if all things and everyone are reconciled, what does that mean? That's the philosophical question here. Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Whenever I'm having a conversation about hell and somebody wants the 30-second version, don't you love it when mm -hmm. people say that, you know? All right, you know, I've always been ETC. Give me, quickly, give me the other ones. I want to say, well, we've got 10 hours of film on it. Go watch <laughs> yeah. it, you know? But this is the verse that I always come to if, if I'm just quickly throwing it out there. When you read that every knee shall bow, how can you possibly take that a different way? Yeah, um, so that e eternal conscious torment people will say that, well, maybe it's bowing in protest. Yeah. That, yeah, they'll, they'll acknowledge it before they're being thrown into the lake of fire. Now, ETC is a bloody view. Uh -huh. And so when, when you take this, there's also this connotation that when this was written in Greco-Roman mm -hmm. times, sometimes you would take a knee to bow mm -hmm. before your head was cut, cut off. off. Yep. And so, mm -hmm. could it be an allusion to that? Uh, and that's that does fit with the annihilationist mm -hmm. thinking too, that you know that could be more of a finality of yep. death as well. So that's how you view it differently, but is that a better view than just looking at it and saying, no, every mm -hmm. everybody is reconciled mm -hmm. back to Christ? Well, let's look at the Greek, the right. um, exomologeo, which means to acknowledge here, or to, to confess, means to profess openly and gladly. Yeah. And remember what Paul says in in Romans 10.9, if you confess Jesus with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that, that Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. So when we get into our textures of hermeneutics and we say what's easier to believe and we go into the language mm -hmm. here, it doesn't seem to signify the protest. description of protest or, or openly and gladly or being your head chopped no. off because it's this finality it shows you this joyous the joyous thing. proclamation and that's Jesus what King. universal reconciliation is really all about mm -hmm. yep um we get the first corinthians uh 3 11 through 15 and paul is talking about um foundations here so yep. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on a foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because um, the day will bring it to the light. That's the day of the Lord. Yeah. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. Um, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even as though escaping through the flames. So, whenever you have hell, you have flames. Mm -hmm. And so, it seems like people have this idea, particularly in the West, that, you know, there's this hellfire brimstone view, and that, that is within the Bible. We have the lake of fire. How do you view that any differently? Yet, when you look at the whole lens of Scripture, fire is very interesting mm -hmm. because it doesn't necessarily take on a hugely negative view like people make mm -hmm. it out to be, particularly yeah. in the ECT camp. It takes on more a view of a refiner's fire. Mm -hmm. And we sing about this all the time, particularly in the 90s and yep. things like that. But, but people understand that there's a, a refining process that God wants to do in us in, in Scripture over and over that's shown through fire. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also interesting, Jesus talks about fire in Mark 9.49, saying, all will be salted with fire. Yeah. So, all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, we get to Hebrews then. Hebrews 12, 6 to 11. And this we talked about a little bit earlier is that um, God disciplines his children. Anyone who go, undergoes discipline, um, if you don't undergo discipline, then you're not a legitimate or a true son or daughter at all. We're all over. We have all had human fathers who have disciplined us, um, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Um, they disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So one of the problems that people are going to have with universal reconciliation is that there are a lot of verses that talk about judgment and people are going to say, well, where is the judgment in universal reconciliation? If all will be judged, if there's a great judgment seat, all of these things, what does that mean? How, how does judgment come if all eventually are going to be reconciled back to Christ in the end? And so... This, again, is a philosophical conversation. Like, how does that work? Sometimes in the Bible, we don't know how everything works. We don't know how these things fit within each other yeah. and how one verse says this and another says this, and that they are both true. Mm -hmm. They're both going to flush out or happen that way. And so when you talk about kind of what this verse says, so you, you look at Hebrews and you say, well, there is going to be some kind of motivation and punishment mm -hmm. there is going to be there is going to be a judgment but we just don't really know how that flushes out or what mm -hmm. it looks like but it is part of the recipe here in the end they're not universal reconciliationists aren't trying to throw out the judgment within yeah. the bible yeah um so the one of the things here is the judgment is seen as restorative and not retributive there might be a little bit of a retributive nature i mean yeah. god will punish for the things done right. Um, but it's for the point of correction. Yeah. It's not for the point of just punishing to punish. Right. You know? And Romans 11 gets into this kind of thinking too. In yeah. fact, we often say if you're going to read 11, you better back up and read nine about through <laughs> 9 through 11 or yeah. 8 through 13 yeah. even if you want to yeah. do that. But what does Romans 11 say? So God bound up everyone in disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Yeah. 
and all means all. all. <laughs> so, so earlier in this passage, it states that all Israel will be saved, and Paul is pretty clear at this point that all Israel doesn't believe, and not all Israel is Israel. <laughs> so. We talk about this all Israel thing a lot. This is really encompassing. So typically when you say all of Israel, you want to say those in the Old Testament that were faithful to God, mm-hmm. placed their obedient allegiance in him, and that doesn't change throughout the New Testament. So if you're into universal reconciliation, you say that in this world, some will do that, but then after this world, the rest will come there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then we get to Revelation. So Revelation is a very interesting book, yeah. um, <laughs> especially the end of Revelation. Yeah. Um, so it says, no, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut. So we're talking about the new Jerusalem here. Yeah. Um, it says, for um, the glory of the Lord and the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will um, anyone who does anything shameful, deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So it's really interesting. When you look at the verses that kind of take a more eschatological nature, such Mm -hmm. as this revelation and and what we said, every knee would bow before this, Mm -hmm. you get every knee will bow and the gates will never be shut. Mm -hmm. Again, I I always get to verses and I want to say, can you interpret that differently? Is mm-hmm. there another way that that flushes out with a different view or what's the best understanding? Mm-hmm. And these are two verses that, boy, yeah. it's just so hard to argue this a different way outside of you are. So the conditionalists will say that um, the, the reason the gates are open is because cities used to shut their gates at night to protect from evil coming in. But if evil's annihilated, then there's no reason to shut the gates. Yeah. But the universalist view shows that the nations are streaming in. And if you look at Revelation, the entire book of Revelation is the people of God, God's kingdom, versus the nations, the yeah. kingdoms of the this world. It's a, it's a battle between them. And so those same nations that were thrown into the lake of fire and stuff like yeah. that are then, at the end of the book, streaming into the New Jerusalem. So it's really important with what Matt's saying to say that within conditional immortality, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. We, we can reconcile this. And within universal reconciliation, we could easily say, mm-hmm. okay, well, that works. I yeah. can go along with that. But the problem is you get to the ECT side of things, and this is really problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the big thing it's talking about in New Jerusalem, there's not going to be any of this, these sins. And so in the universalist view, once the lake of fire is for purification, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. So after these things have been taken off, yeah, then they can enter. Right. So... What about repentance after death? So I kind of alluded to that a couple minutes ago, but let's let's get into that a little bit more and kind of talk about what that means. Yeah, um, so repentance after death is kind of a lot of what universalism hinges on. Yeah. Um, So while there's no positive statement in the Bible affirming repentance after death, there's also no negative statement that disaffirms it. Yeah, So. so does the Bible specifically say that people could be given another chance in the afterlife it doesn't it's say silent. it, and it doesn't refute it. Yep. So we're left with this mystery yep. of the gospel mm-hmm. to go, what is it? Yep, so most people will appeal to Hebrews 9.27. It says, just as people are destined to die once and to face judgment. So this verse is um, is not about eternal torment or annihilation. It doesn't mention the kind of judgment. 
So could it be restorative? Could be restorative. Yeah. So when a criminal is brought before a trial and sentenced, what happens? So we're going here yeah. because when you get into ETC mm -hmm. and we haven't made that video, yep. we're going to hear a lot of trial language, yep. courtroom kind of scenarios. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we're talking about this, that yep. we we bring some of that language in yeah. to kind of make it make sense of it. And if you don't understand that mm -hmm. when we get to ETC, it'll make more sense. Yeah. So um, when someone's brought before a judge, it depends on the judge's verdict and the sentencing. This verse only doesn't speak about the verdict or the sentencing. It only says that we'll appear before the judge. Yeah. It doesn't say what's going to happen after that. Yeah. So, so you have these these verses that say, death, where is your victory? Yeah. And we're coming up on Easter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you hear this in Easter. You hear yeah. people saying this in yeah. church over and over and over. And, you know, I'm always chuckling through every mm -hmm. Easter when I hear this because sometimes this is kind of, you know, hinged in with this ECT kind of, wrath, torment, camp, mm -hmm. talk, and things like that. But then they get to this and they always say this. And I, again, I chuckle because I go, well, what you're saying doesn't really go together. Yeah. Um, and then you also have uh, the rich man and Lazarus is another one that people... Yeah. So um, the rich man and Lazarus parable, we went over it a little bit in our, yeah. our last um, our last series, or with uh, conditional immortality, but it seems to be kind of about how you treat people in this life. And it, according to the intertextual data where it's used in the Babylonian Talmud, it seems to be talking about the same thing. But at the end, the rich man tells Lazarus, asks Abraham if the beggar can go, Lazarus can go back and mourn his brothers. And he says, no, he's like, they have the law and the prophets. So that kind of might point to finality of you have a choice in this life and death is the cutoff. Nobody in these views really puts a lot of merit in the rich man and Lazarus story. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not that they're all quick to just, you know, throw it under the bus, so to speak. It's just that it's problematic. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you're not, this isn't a good proof for yeah. any of the views. And the reason is, is because it's pre-ascension. Yeah. And parables also usually at one meeting so what is the one thing that the story is trying to get at so don't don't take one little part of it and make a whole doctrine out of mm -hmm. it you know ma yeah. major on the majors mm -hmm. and and not on the minors and so yeah. so we don't want to spend too much time on the rich man and Lazarus but actually if you are going to take that and say which view does it hold closer to you again you kind of end you, up you can go with any of them go really with any of them, yeah. yeah because like you said it's pre-cross so after the cross is ephesians 4 7 to 11 says that jesus led a captive of hosts out of the lower earthly regions yeah. before he ascended and this might point to the redemptions of the nations from yeah. the old testament and um the god who is who Back in the Old Testament, the God of Israel had nothing to do with that. Right, right. You know, so. So in framing this, we've kind of talked about, you know, the the fire portion being more refining than anything. Mm -hmm. We've talked about repentance after death, perhaps a mm -hmm. second chance out of this life, that the Bible's kind of silent on that. Let's go back. We started with fire, and let's kind of go back to that, because now that we've talked about some of those things, I think we can dive a little more into the brimstone and sulfur mm -hmm. thinking yeah. so we have Sodom and Gomorrah yeah we talked about that in our, our last episode so um, in the conditional immortality view of it the the image is of destruction uh, so fire and brimstone 
the images are linked here um, in Revelation 14, as Chris Date talked about, yep. links that with uh, the, the lake of fire type yep. thinking there. But it's interesting in Ezekiel 16. Very interesting. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> So basically, Ezekiel's talking about this. Now, now the sin of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters of Samaria and their daughters and your fortunes along with them. So you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters will return to what they were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. Yeah. So Sodom and Gomorrah being restored. Yeah. I remember when I was young, my grandfather was into all kinds of big machinery stuff. And he had a forge and he was always doing like mm -hmm. blacksmithing stuff. And... A lot of times in the old days, you would walk in and things would just reek of sulfur. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first married my wife and we, we came out to Grandpa George out in the shop, I remember vividly my wife saying, what is that stench? Mm -hmm. And it was a stench of sulfur. Yep. So sulfur isn't necessarily just put in the lake of fire to make it smell bad right. and punching, but there's a chemical reaction when you mix sulfur with fire. It's a chemical reaction that refines. Yeah. So Proverbs 17.3 says the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Yeah. So maybe that sulfur is then that even the lake of fire could be translated as a river or a pool of fire. And they than... get this in, in ancient times. First Corinthians 5 kind of says it burns off the dross. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a that's again kind of a blacksmithing term going back mm -hmm. to fire and sulfur doing this so mm -hmm. the reason that's important is because it shows that this understanding was back then we sometimes we look at it and we say well we know more now yeah. than they knew when they wrote yeah. this which is a dangerous mm -hmm. thing to say but this first corinthians 5 kind of puts this kind of thinking of fire, brimstone, burning sulfur together and, mm -hmm. and makes sense that they understood that as authors back then. Yep. Um, then let's get to Gehenna. Um, we talked about Gehenna in our intro video and in our last video. Yep. Uh, Chris Dade even talked about it a little bit. And so you'll remember the Jeremiah tradition um, that we saw that when the use of Gehenna was for national judgment. Yeah. Um, for Ju idolatry. Judgment for idolatry. Yep. yep. Um, and so we went over this also in our eschatology series. We saw a lot about how Revelation is about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem for rejecting right. the Messiah. Um, Jesus uses get the use of Gehenna to a universalist shows earthly judgment. So Jeremiah's warnings to Israel were about them being handed over to armies. Jesus's warnings when so he uses Gehenna every single time except for the rich man and Lazarus, I believe, and. So if he's echoing Jeremiah's tradition of, hey, if you don't come to my way of living, if you don't follow the Jesus Sermon on the Mount way of life, then Rome's going to knock you down. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, that when we talk about Gehenna, and we've made this, that in Second Temple Judaism, there was really no understanding for an afterlife with this. Yeah. It, there was no consensus on... No. Um, there was very few who took eternal torment. Like I said, the majority took annihilation. Um but that could have just been death because that's what Jeremiah's tradition yeah. pointed to. But there were a few who thought that 
you go in there for a period, like a year, there's After a couple judgment, rabbis, yeah, yeah and yeah. you'd be refined yeah. and then let go, or yeah. punished for your, your deeds in the body and then let go. Yeah. So, but yeah, the, the, I think the majority view connected this Old Testament judgment um, with Israel, um, and not so much eternal hell, but physical earthly judgment is what Gehenna... And we come back to that 70 AD destruction uh -huh. all the time. And you, you can't take that out of the equation of the biblical mm -hmm. writing, particularly of the New Testament. Now, there are a few mentions, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that kind of seems to point Gehenna as connected yeah. to a future eschatological yep. judgment. So the universalists get hung up there a little bit. Right. So that's why we don't completely go here. We yeah. see that Jesus could be echoing to an eschatological judgment, but I think his primary context is the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. So there are there are problems within this view. There are mm -hmm. things that are hard to reconcile, you might mm -hmm. say, but they're not that hard to reconcile. Um, and in fact, again, I don't want to necessarily just be throwing rocks at ECT, but there's a whole bunch of problems <laughs> that are hard to reconcile within that view. Uh -huh. So when I compare that to this. The problems within this view are... Less than ECT. Yeah, significantly less. In fact, I, I don't really have a lot of problems with the problems in this mm -hmm. view. I kind of just look at it and say, well, I might not have the answers, but I think God could figure it out. Where ECT, mm -hmm. the problems that we arrive at there are much more substantial. And they're much more with the character of God. We'll get there. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Um, eternal. Aeon. Aeonius. We've talked about this a few times. Aeon, at its most basic definition, just means age. Yeah. Doesn't mean eternal. Yep. So what we saw in our last episode, Aeon and Aeonius don't necessarily mean eternal. They yep. can refer to a location. Yep. It can also refer to um, the results of something. So Belonging uh, to it. Too. Yeah. 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 So eternal destruction means being destroyed and the results are eternal. Yeah. Um, but here... Um, it could also mean belonging to an age. Yeah. So, um, for example, Paul talks about multiple ages in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. Yeah. Um, so when we get Matthew 12, 32, a lot of people will go to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and saying that it won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. But let's think about this in context. What age is Jesus in when he's saying it? Yeah. The Mosaic age. Right. The next age. The church age. But what about the age after that, eternity? So yeah. when Jesus comes and sets up that kingdom. We have a problem with this because in Western church thinking, we're mm -hmm. so dispensational. Yeah. And I, that just always blows yeah. me away. Where that, How that got so ingrained yeah. into our thinking. But I like to just, again, go back to what the scripture says generationally yeah. in the Old Testament. Yeah. And whenever I read this, it really seems to be, you know, something about the length of a person's lifetime is where I think the best understanding mm -hmm. or where I land with it. Yeah, and Aeon often, like you can look back in Greek literature, meant about sometimes 50 to 100 years. Yeah. So, so. Within, within this context or understanding of what all these things mean, Chris Date tackled the big three. Mm -hmm. And so there's three main scriptures that, that you that are on eschatological thinking that you have to wrestle with in every view. So when we get to the big three, 
how does universal reconciliation flush out within those three? Yeah. That's the question. Big three connect the word eternal, or aeon, aeonius. That's why it's so important, yep. punishment. Yep. And so Matthew 25, uh, verses 41 and 46, uh, he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So remember what we said about Aeon and Aeonius a minute ago. They will, um, so here's David Bentley Hart's translation of it. He's a universal restorationist guy and um, a Greek language scholar. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the top um, Greek linguists out there. He says it should be translated this way. And these will go off into chastisement. So the punishment there is the word chastisement. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, of that age, but uh, the just to the life of the age. Yeah. So that's his translation from uh, his New Testament. So here punishment is kalazo. Um, it appears twice in the Bible, in Acts 4.21 and 2 Peter 2.9. And both times it refers to someone being held in check yeah. until a, t a time of judgment or correction. This is very biblical. We, we're going to see themes in the Bible reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. And so in the Old Testament, the entire law, and you've heard us use this language mm -hmm. before, is a stopgap until the Messiah gets there. Mm -hmm. Is it the only stopgap thinking within the context of the Bible? Probably not. Yeah. And so when you get to this kind of thinking of, of universal reconciliation, and you look at Acts 4 and 2 Peter 1, and quite a few other passages too, you get this idea of a reoccurring theme of stopgap thinking. Yep. Um, and it's interesting that this word colazo, the word for punishment here, was used for pruning trees. Yeah. So, I mean, you'd prune a tree so that it could flourish. Yep. Um, though some debate this, saying that the pruning tree, meaning, was not used at the time of first century, that it was in the intertestamental period, and the word had changed meanings by then. Some yep. linguists will say that. So we just kind of don't know here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, whenever we get into these strange, you know, linguistic things of, of antiquity, mm -hmm. you can try to find extra biblical sources that are going to use them differently. Yeah. And that's why this is debated, because mm -hmm. there are some places that use it's those differently. For punishment. <laughs> yep. for punishment. Yep. And so you can't totally throw it out, but there's probably not enough to make a solid statement on it either. So yeah. we're just going to, if we're keeping a scorecard here, mm -hmm. we're just going to chalk this one up for point in the middle. It doesn't yeah. help either side yeah. or either argument. Yeah. So then we get to Revelation 14. Um, it's talking about the smoke of the torment rising forever and ever. Um, there'll be no rest for them day and night, those who worship the beast in his image. And so we mentioned this text doesn't line up with the lake of fire in revelation 20 that's why this is a big so. three this is this is the one everybody wrestles mm -hmm. with because it just doesn't seem to mm -hmm. fit all of the views anywhere yeah. all three views really wrestle with this one and we've beaten this view to death you can go look at our our yeah. video with chris date and so we won't get into this one too much but the smoke rising forever and ever isn't uh it speaks more to actually annihilation yeah. than it does eternal right. torment because edom wasn't it was annihilated. Right. It wasn't. Uh, yep. The smoke isn't going up today. Yep. And so in Revelation 20, the devil and those who deceived him were thrown into the lake of fire, a uh, lake of burning sulfur, uh, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. Uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we've already talked about sulfur and purification. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to go into that again. Yeah. Now, this is second death. And mm -hmm. so again, whenever I'm quickly having this conversation, this is one of those verses that I come to and I say, you have to do something with this idea of second death. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're going to take any of these three main views, what does second death mean? Yeah. And I would say this is a major reason why I land on conditional immortality. Yeah. And so when I look at the whole lens and I try to put all these verses together, I come to this one in Revelation and I go. I do think that judgment for some people means some kind of a finality. That's what mm -hmm. the second death means. So if you're into universal reconciliation, how do you flush out Revelation 20? Yeah, so it's they have the universalists have to take a little bit of the ECT view, especially with their view of death being metaphorical or yeah. spiritual right. here instead of death meaning death not having to reinterpret it. So yeah. they'll and we'll get into the metaphorical view of death when we do our ECT yeah. video next week. Um, but so, so f to a Christian, their first death is dying with Christ. Yeah. And then the second death would be actually the physical death, which resurrection would come afterwards. Yeah. So to a non-believer, maybe their first death would be dying, but their second death would be them dying with Christ. So coming to believe. So if you're taking the universal reconciliation view here, you say you have two deaths. One, one physical, one, one spiritual. One physical, one spiritual, and that's it. Um, the problem with that thinking is there seems to be a more eschatological understanding with it. That it's, mm -hmm. it's post-judgment. And so... Does it work that way? I think it could. You know, I think you could arrive at saying, no, it's just physical and spiritual mm -hmm. death and not really branch into the post-judgment eschatological mm -hmm. thinking. That's okay. That's yeah. not bad theology to do that. Yeah. And then to the universalists, remember in the next chapter after this, 21 and 22, the New Jerusalem, the gates are open and the nations are coming in. Yeah. So, so this is one of those things that I said, it's problematic, but it's not that problematic. Yeah. Within good theology, it can be reconciled. You just kind of look at it and go, uh, if that's what it means, I think the writers could have been a little yeah. more clear. Uh -huh. But I could see how it, if if we get to the end and God says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what it means. He didn't quite articulate it, but that's what we were going for there. I'll just kind of smile and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Let's, go, let's go to the next thing. Yeah. So there's a couple more things before we kind of bring this to a close. We we really kind of have to deal with the words death and destruction. Mm -hmm. um, those are the ones that in the other two views, ECT and um, you, uh, conditional immortality. There you go, conditional immortality. There there's a finality of death and destruction for mm -hmm. both of them. There's 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 going to be some people tormented forever and ever and ever. If you're ECT, if you're not, if you're going to be an annihilationist, then you're going to say there's just they're just dead. Yep. You know, maybe possibly after a little bit of torment, but at some point they're just dead. Mm -hmm. And so, what does 
universal reconciliation do with death and destruction? So they don't re reject the death and destruction passages. They place these judgments primarily in this life and not the next life. And Chris Date really did a great job of bringing that out. Mm -hmm. This is where I come back to say he's reformed. He thinks differently than you and I do. Mm -hmm. And when you come from that reformed understanding, it looks a little bit different mm -hmm. than the way yeah. you and I kind of see it. Yeah, so we talked about colossus, uh, that word for about pruning yeah. um, chastisement. or chastisement. Yeah. To uh, That's what that means for universalists. That's the punishment, destruction yeah. type words. Um, likewise, uh, alethros, which is the destruction verse in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the where we talked about the shutout from the presence. Yeah. The shutout isn't in there. Yeah. So that could mean um, ra ruin rather than destruction. Yeah. Um, it is in the gloss of yeah. the word. So right. we're not we're not rejecting that. But universalists take that the eschatological destruction passages are about the flesh being ruined and the spirit being purified. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, can you go through these verses of mm -hmm. destruction and not mean death that's yeah. the question that's yeah and again that's a that's a tough one within the view but it, it could work out that way yeah and death as we saw in conditional immortality in the old testament shouldn't just be viewed as an afterlife event but a this life event as well because there wasn't really a developed afterlife theology in the old testament we don't get that until daniel which we see is the latest book written in the old testament yeah so. now one of the reasons why I'm so open to this idea of universal reconciliation, even though I don't really fall here. I'm an, I'm an annihilationist, but I'm a hopeful universal reconciliationist, is because if you know anything about me in the videos, Matt and I are both majorly free will people. Mm -hmm. So what does free will speak of in universal reconciliation? Yeah, so some universalists, such as David Bentley Hart, um, will argue that um, our will is bound by sin, so we can't actually make proper decisions that would benefit us. Okay. And so, like infants and children, we don't always choose what's best for us. So some universalists like him believe that we don't have enough cognitive responsibility or even enough true freedom to be condemned based on our choices. Like having a disability or a child dying prematurely. Yeah. They didn't have a ch the ability to make a proper choice and reason. Right effectively. So that's kind of where David Bentley Hart goes. Yeah. You and I go slightly different. Yeah. We, we, we believe that yes, we do have the ability to choose between right and wrong. And yes, sometimes based on our upbringing or our choices, that can be, yeah. can, can be a little bit, but we believe that yes, there needs to be a true choice. And the other thing that people argue against the universalist view is, is God forcing people to love right. him. Right. Is there actually a choice in the matter? Yeah. And then others will say when you experience God as true and perfect love, then who would reject that? Yep. So. so let's bring this to kind of a close and let's just sum up some things. What We need to talk about the major strengths and weaknesses of the view. So first, why do we like this? Why do you and I, I, I know myself, I describe myself as a hopeful <laughs> Hopeful, Hopefully, and I think Matt, even you might be I'm a closet hopeful. one. Yeah, You're there I'm too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the major strengths of this view is number one, and this this is where I go back to the philosophical thing is when you read who God is throughout mm -hmm. the Bible. This is the most consistent view 
with what we read of the mm-hmm. character of God's love. Yep. Uh, the next thing is scripture supports the possibility of all being saved. Yeah. We've seen it kind of over and over here. Uh, and it affirms that God is powerful and he's able to accomplish what he wants to. So if God wants to accomplish this, it's within his power to do it. Yeah. And there's so many scriptures that say that, that God has a sense of hope for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that hope is really important in Christianity. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all hopeful of what the what the Bible teaches, and this is what it's saying, that all might come to know him. Mm-hmm. Um, if God truly does love all and save all, then it really motivates the followers of Jesus to see people in a reflection of that love and not just see them as people that God might want to yeah. judge. Yeah. So it actually, what I've seen in my, I have some friends that are, that they're some of the most loving people that yeah. I've met, and, yeah. and it's motivated because of this view. Right. Um, right. So I think it, the, that is a strength behind this view. And I would also say that there's a strength when you get into the passages on death and salvation, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, some of the ones that are trying to parse how those two things work together. And at the end, if everybody comes back to him, it, it does make sense. And, and mm-hmm. I'm going to put that as a weakness later, too, because mm-hmm. the, the, it's both. It, yeah. it can be the best, but it can also be the worst, yeah. which we find in life is often true. Yeah. So, and also, this view makes sense of retributive and restorative justice passages. So we have make sense of both. We, we go back to the retribution principle all the time, mm-hmm. that there seems to be a truth in it, and there seems to be a fight against it, that both both are true within the Bible, that God wants us to honor him and and follow after him. And when he does, and when we do that, there's mm-hmm. going to be some kind of a blessing or a retribution associated with that. But it isn't always that yeah. way. God doesn't want us to get into this sense of saying, yeah. we're going to do this because of yeah. this and that and things like that. Joke, you serve God for nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the weaknesses? So so I'm going to frame this as Matt and I don't necessarily fall here. And why don't we? What What is our biggest problem with this view? Um, so all doesn't always mean all in the scripture. You have to look at the context to see what it means. Pretty much universalists will take every all to mean all. Um, an example in the Gospels, it says that all of Jerusalem was coming out to see Jesus. Yeah. Was literally all of Jerusalem or just a lot of people? Yeah. So. And you're going to get into this This conversation of all Israel is really mm-hmm. huge. I yeah. mean, you're going to get into a lot of different debates. And Matt and I, when we say all of Israel, again, we just come back to all those that believed in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and this, this one. But when you get into universal reconciliation, that all gets interesting. So, yeah. That could be a weakness, but it's not a huge thing to not, work through. It's, it, yeah, it doesn't kill the view. So um, next is tradition following the fourth century seemed to be pretty silent about. I mean, you can find little threads here yeah. and there, but it wasn't like what Augustine said that many in his time were. After Augustine, it seemed that it it kind of died out. Yeah. Yeah. Now the other, I'm going to call this a weakness, but I'm not really sure it's yeah. a weakness. Matt and I aren't really very evangelical. Um, In fact, we kind of cringe at evangelical things, and neither one of us really like any kind of discussion of momentary salvation because we see it as a journey, Mm -hmm. you know, that the the path to getting to God is is a journey. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say that one problem with going with this view is going to be that 
what you hear in church Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning doesn't really line up here. Yeah, um, so it might, some will, will argue that universalism will decrease evangelistic efforts if everyone's going to be saved. And if you can't use the hellfire forever type uh, preaching and evangelism, then how are you going to get people saved? Do you need altar calls every Sunday yeah. if this is really uh -huh. what you believe? So. Yeah, and, but then you got to go back and look at how is the gospel presented in Acts. They right. never used hell. Right. They never refer. They never gave an ultimate, um, basically, view of of the afterlife as the reason for. Yeah. For they said Jesus is king. Come follow him. <laughs> now, along with that kind of thinking in the Bible, there seems to be these passages that are going to speak to um, a point of no return. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's judgment yeah. that is final. Yeah. And again, this is where I've said that Matt and I really both fall into the annihilationist camp more so than this mm -hmm. camp because we do see a finality here. Yeah. And as though you can answer that finality as we have done today, mm -hmm. it's still, we would say, is a weakness within the view. Yeah, often you see two paths, two gates. Um, so yeah, some, some of the arguments um, I... I mean, this is just personal that I see it to be a little bit of a stretch in the universal view when yeah. there just seems to be finality at yeah. times. So, uh, free will. As free will people, we're going to have a little bit of a struggle mm -hmm. within this view. Yeah. Not a big struggle. In mm -hmm. fact, again, the the Reformed camp is going to have way more, more of a struggle within the view, mm -hmm. but, but we are too. Yeah. Um, so, does God override people's free will? He often seems to, we see, give them over to their desires. Um, if they don't want him, then he allows their hearts to be hardened. Yeah. That's kind of the what the, what we see the uh, above God in the scripture. Well, he forced himself on somebody at gunpoint. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what it yeah. seems like in the, what hell is in the universal view is God forcing himself onto people. So, so the way that they reconcile this is if, if you actually met Jesus, would everybody believe what Jesus says? Well, that's problematic because in the gospel, that's not true. Yeah. There are still some that meet Jesus and walk Make away and don't want it. Mm -hmm. um, a hard thing to reconcile in this view is, will Hitler and Satan be saved? Yeah, you know, I can actually come to the Hitler yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. I, I can get that, especially if you're going to say that there's some torment mm -hmm. or some kind of judgment, yeah. whether it's figurative or mm -hmm. allegorical or whatever. If there's some kind of thing, after being tormented long enough, would everybody, you know, mm -hmm. come back to Jesus, so yeah. to speak? Well, well, maybe, but what about Satan? That's yeah. a little more problematic. Yeah. And, of course, you can just say that... that Maybe the spiritual and spiritual beings are different than what we are. When we get to yeah. Revelation, it does describe one being thrown into the lake of fire, mm -hmm. more of a forever and ever sense, and it mm -hmm. leaves those words off on the next one. Yeah, and then you got to think also, like if Satan is left to be out there in God's creation forever, is God actually all in all then too? You almost so. have to take the whole thing or nothing, nothing. here. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Some some will say that the cross is useless without view, punishment. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of get. <laughs> oh man! Oh, you kind of get. The, <laughs> you kind of get this this torment of the cross that there mm -hmm. has to be wrath associated. Mm -hmm. That kind of thinking and. Yeah. Again, we're going to get into this with ECT, but mm -hmm. but that's going to be a problem. If you think that way, you're not going to be able to land here. Yeah, so you're going to have a major problem. Yeah, universalists 
we'll see that um, don't see the cross so much about punishment, but about salvation. So, what an amazing concept. Yeah, yeah. so they kind of see Jesus <laughs> defeating death and the powers on the cross. Yeah. Um, and that's what was holding mankind hostage. It wasn't so much about guilt, because um, they a lot of these people believe that that view didn't come around until Anselm and then yeah. maybe Calvin. But God outright forgave people in the Old Testament, even without sacrifice. So Jesus... Yeah. And Jesus forgave before he even died. This is where cross, we so. come back to needing another film on atonement uh -huh. theories. Yep. And, and yeah. this, that's probably a 55-part yeah. film on yeah. it. I don't know. But mm -hmm. but it's going to influence your thinking. Yeah, so the universalists will see that Jesus was our substitute in death to defeat death. Yeah. And so when you defeat death, that brings resurrection. So that was that's what they see as the purpose. It wasn't the purpose of punishment and some people would say it's just a matter of semantics here, mm -hmm. but I think it's important. There seems to be a great divide mm -hmm. within this one. Yeah. Either you land on this side or you don't. And those that don't have a lot of flexibility mm -hmm. within this understanding, those that do kind of take a more rigid view on it, and they're not going to be really open to anything except those wrath camp ideas. Yeah, and we'll do an atonement series yeah. coming up sometime. Um, so the last thing that I have here on my list was a lot hangs on post-mortem repentance. Yes. So this view, if you don't have post-mortem repentance, if you can't repent after you die and turn to Jesus, then this view falls apart. There's, so, there's no place for it. There's no place yeah. for it. So, yeah. And like we said, there's no nothing that is uh, affirms or denies Bible silent it, on it. The, yeah. Bible silent on it. So you would think that if it was true, maybe something would be said about it. Now there is something to be said that those in the open theist camps and people don't even like it when I use that word are going to say maybe the end of the book isn't quite written on this one. Maybe, maybe God has yet to decide what's going to happen as far as that goes. Yeah, or maybe just he hasn't revealed all the cards yet in the scriptures. It's not for us to know. That's for him yeah. to know. And like you said, uh, deciding people's eternal destiny is above our pay grade. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and uh, postmortem repentance might be more about the amount of light you're given. Like somebody in the deep jungles of Africa who yeah. haven't heard the name of Jesus, maybe there's hope for them because the Bible doesn't affirm or deny postmortem repentance. Could be dynamic. Mm -hmm. God God might have the ability to decide how and when he wants to choose differently. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard one for people to try to understand and some just frankly will say there's no place for it. Yep. While others are going to greatly affirm it and go with the more open or dynamic view. Yeah. So that is universal reconciliation. I think after this rather long video of going through everything, no stone unturned, mm -hmm. we keep saying in the hell yeah. series, I think it's, it's easier to find a place for this one. This mm -hmm. is the one that most people think is heresy or heretical and after really digging into it, you kind of find that it's actually really not at all. Yeah, um, and many of the early church held to this view. Um, and uh, so, if you know somebody who's a universalist, don't don't call them a heretic. There's been three Christian views, like we've said, of hell yeah. throughout the whole history of the church. Yeah. Um, and we're and, just on the quest to see which one's the most biblical. And I'll come back to this and just say, boy, after after doing a lot of the work. 
This one's hard to fight with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does have some problems, yeah. but not major problems. Mm -hmm. you, you kind of said this before, that if we get to heaven and, we, and Jesus says this is the way it was, mm -hmm. we'll just smile. This isn't an argument no. where all right. <laughs> you're going to find the next film that we go, when we go into ECT, there are some definite arguments in this one that we're going to have a hard time. We're, our language is going to be very different. This is very expressive in terms of the character of God and love that we just we love we mm -hmm. don't we don't yeah. really have major problems with it although we in the end come back and go back to annihilation and say that just seems to make a little more sense yeah. mostly in the finality scriptures mm -hmm. yeah and uh, not having to reinterpret death and not having to make assumptions about immortality yeah. hope you enjoyed this and we look forward to tuning into the next series of eternal conscious torment as part of our series on hell. May God bless you and keep you.